Okay, let's go through this one more time. Psylocke comes out of the Siege Perilous semi-catatonic. She's found by Matsuo Surayaba, who switches her brain with his comatose girlfriend's brain, gives her ninja skills and a sweet face tattoo, and- Nope, try again. Damn it, I really thought I had it this time. You were doing pretty well until the tattoo. Okay, Psylocke totally had a face tattoo. The red one over her eye, remember? Well, yeah, but she didn't get it from Matsuo. I assume it's got some kind of complicated origin, though, right? At least as a retcon. Oh, dude, absolutely. I mean, it's from the Crimson Dawn. The Patrick Swayze movie. You're thinking of Red Dawn. The Crimson Dawn is a magical healing elixir from an eponymous dimension. Huh. Okay, how'd Psylocke end up with it? Okay, so she was attacked and critically injured by Sabretooth. Wait, she was still in her original body at that point. Okay, no, you're right. Uh, She was attacked and critically injured again by Sabretooth. And Wolverine and Archangel went to one of Wolverine's buddies, who decided that the best bet for saving Psylocke would be this interdimensional healing potion. Accompanied by Doctor Strange, they headed off on an epic quest and ultimately ended up swapping a piece of Betsy's soul for the elixir. Wait, Betsy was there on the quest? I thought you said she was critically injured. Yeah, no, she was still at home. So how'd they get a piece of her soul? Oh, she'd left it with Archangel. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 137 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome officially to the 90s. I believe one of the issues we're covering today is the first 90s X-Men issue that we will have touched. And appropriately, the first full arc drawn by Jim Lee. And this is not quite our first glimpse of the X-Men post-Siege Perilous, but the first time we're going to see much focus on one. We are going to be looking at Psylocke this week, and joining us, we have a guest expert, the absolutely splendid Sarah Kuhn. Sarah is the author of Heroin Complex, which came out this year. It's the first in a series of novels starring Asian-American superheroines, um, which came out from DAW Books and Penguin Random House. She's also the author of The Ruby Equation, which appeared in the Eisner and Harvey-nominated comics anthology Fresh Romance, a series of Barbie comics, and the romantic comedy novella One Con Glory, which is currently in development as a major motion picture. She's also just an amazing badass and one of my very, very favorite people in the internet and the comics community. And as far as I know, a lifelong X-Men fan. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. And right back at you, you are also one of my favorite people in the whole comics community. Um, Yeah, so we figured we're covering a very strange storyline here. It's the one where Psylocke depending on what point in continuity we're in, either has her body altered into that of a Japanese woman or has her body swapped with that of a Japanese woman. And the two of us are um, very, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, white. So we wanted to get an outside perspective. Well, and we specifically, (laughs) you've not only written about and addressed a lot of this and, you know, grew up reading it, but you've also written a lot of fiction and written comics that very deliberately address and subvert a lot of the stuff that we're going to be unpacking in this particular storyline. Yes, I mean, that's, I guess, kind of uh, become one of my things. When uh, I first started sort of promoting Heroin Complex, which um, stars multiple Asian American superheroines, which actually this arc of the X-Men does as well, um, sort of, kind of, um, <laughs> I, uh, I had to make a decision about whether I was going to say it was a superheroine book or an Asian American superheroine book. And I actually take great pride in saying that it's an Asian American superheroine book, because I feel like that's something I always wanted. You know, and I I have written about especially Jubilee and how I love Jubilee now. But at the time, she felt like sort of one of the only Asian American superheroines out there. And I didn't totally identify with her. 
so that was kind of a long, a long journey. But um, yes, I I have a lot of very complicated feelings about Psylocke and about Jubilee and this story. So I'm excited to talk about it more. Yeah, and we're excited to have you here. Thank you. Absolutely. So it occurs to me, we have a fair bit of backstory leading up to this, so maybe we should do a brief previously on X-Men. What X-Men? The X-Men don't exist anymore. The X-Men are all dead and or unstuck in the universe, since in rapid succession, Storm appeared to die, Rogue got sucked into the Siege Perilous in a fight. And to remind you, the Siege Perilous is a big dimensional portal thing that Roma, the daughter of Merlin, gave to the X-Men. When people go through it, their memories are erased, and they're given a new sort of karmically determined life. Longshot quit the team. Wolverine went on a solo series vacation and came back just in time to get captured and tortured by the Reavers because in his absence, Psylocke had telepathically pushed Havoc, Dazzler, and Colossus through the Siege Perilous to prevent a vision she'd had of the Reavers killing them all and had then jumped through after them. Yeah, so since then, in our brave new X-Men-less era of X-Men, Jubilee, who was a teenage girl that met some of the X-Women in a mall a while back, came out of hiding in the Outback base that the X-Men had been living in to save Wolverine from the Reavers. They are now sort of off on their own. A child who appears to be a young Aurora Monroe has surfaced in Cairo, and the Hand, those wacky ninjas that Daredevil fights all the time, found Psylocke washed up on a beach with no memories and started doing weird, mystic-y, science-y stuff to her. I mean, I don't know what you do when you find a superhero on the beach with no memories, but this is basically business as usual for the Hand. I mean, I feel like I would call the police or something. I don't know. Dude, they're the Hand. They're organized crime. They can't call... I guess they, they probably have weird, awkward, coercive relationships with some police, but I don't think, for the most part, they're on buddy-buddy terms. I think I'd probably be a terrible member of the Hand anyway. I mean, I took a little martial arts. I never got very good. So I just came up with a really complicated conspiracy theory around this, but I'm going to wait until it's context appropriate in the episode to bring it up. Well, speaking of the episode, do you guys want to dive into the issues at hand? That's 256 to 258. Let's do it. (laughs) Yes, let's do it. So I guess the first thing that jumps out at me is Jim Lee's art. Right. Yeah, this is not his first issue. He's done, I think, one fill in at this point, but this is the first full arc he draws. And this introduces what would become, I think, his first character design for one of the X-Men. With the new Psylocke, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for that matter, the new Jubilee, at least as far as costume, too. Yes. Although um, she's not quite resolved into her final look yet. She's getting closer. But I got to say, and I don't know if this was the same way for you two, but for me, reading this issue after so much Mark Silvestri stuff, like suddenly it's the 90s. Like this is what the 90s looks like. I think even more than any of Rob Liefeld's work, really Jim Lee determined so much of that entire era. Well, we talked before about Art Adams as kind of patient zero of a lot of the 90s tropes, especially the pouches, but a lot of the 90s aesthetics. If he is that, then Jim Lee is patient zero of the 90s signature art styles. He was the guy who everyone was trying to draw like And really, he's the guy who defined kind of the image and top cow look that you see the sort of very angular, very fine line inking. It's common to him to think of other people I associate it with. Um, Liefeld, of course, Todd McFarlane, Michael Turner. Absolutely. So, yeah, we get started here in Hong Kong. Now, the book has really been jumping around because we're in this era where it's following a bunch of random mutants and non-mutants who are associated with the X-Men. And so the fact that we open in this place that we've only briefly seen at the end of a previous issue, like, it's not too much of a surprise at this point. I should say, too, that there are asides about a couple of the other X-Men in these issues, which we're not going to cover right now. We're basically going to follow each of those characters' stories together. So today is just Psylocke Day. We open with uh, Matsuo Tsuriyabe. This is the fella from The Hand who originally found Psylocke when she washed up. And today he is taking a very proactive approach to job applications 
by killing his way through all of the Mandarin's guards in hopes that he can then, you know, get hired to replace them. Yeah. Now, for those who have just been following X-Men, the Mandarin is typically an Iron Man villain. He's a kind of crime lord and he's got 10 rings, each of which has a different magic power, kind of like the eyeballs of a beholder. And they look exactly like these dinky metal rings that you used to be able to get in plastic bubbles from vending machines. And I cannot shake that association from my head. So congratulations. Now it's in yours, too. (laughs) Now I want to go to a bunch of vending machines to see if I can find like some, you know, Mento intensifier rings or something. Well, or specifically, like I think they had them as, do you remember Pirate's Cove in Sarasota? Yes, I was in Bradenton. I played a lot of laser tag there. One of the skee-ball ticket prizes, you could get stuff like that. Oh, man. So they had those there, too. I was wasting my time playing laser tag when I could have been winning a Mento Intensifier ring. Okay. Seriously, though, skee-ball is amazing. Laser tag is cool, but I will definitely go for skee-ball any day. Oh, man, I have to disagree. Uh, Sarah, what's your take? Skee-ball, laser tag, something else? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I have to go with skee-ball, honestly, just because there's something very meditative about it. Just like trying to get that ball at the right speed into the right spot. I just I find it very soothing, actually. Well, I'm I'm outnumbered. Yeah. I will gracefully accept uh, that fact, although I stand by my opinion. It's non-competitive. You can get prizes. It's a great date activity because you can fake doing the teaching someone to bowl activity and it's a lot goofier, but also a lot clearer in its implications. Huh. I guess that's harder with laser tag. I mean, it's a different type of romantic teaching someone to do something montage. <laughs> yeah. I guess it depends what you're in the mood for. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Matsuo Tsuriaba, as you said, Jay, he is talking to the Mandarin and he's got a sort of business proposal, which I guess that's how you introduce business proposals to the Mandarin is you murder his dudes. <clears throat> I stripped you of those lesser hands that I might offer you the services of the true hand. Is that a hand pun? There are a lot of hand puns going there on There are a here. lot of almost hand puns and a lot of missed opportunities for hand puns. And that bothers me because I feel like one of the perks of working for the hand should be getting to make nonstop hand puns and jokes. Well, and Matsuo tries again because the Mandarin asks if the hand is like Hydra, where, you know, if you cut off one head, there will be two to take its place. And Matsuo replies, Whatever the fate of one hand, Lord, a man may still rely on the other. So the hand can die, like, once, and then there's just one hand left? Well, twice, presumably, but the metaphor also assumes that everyone is ambidextrous and there are no activities that require two hands. So I got nothing, and I feel like we should be making a masturbation joke here, but I can't think of a good one. So Matsuo is really good at things like brainwashing and dealing with crime lords. He's not so good at metaphors. Not everyone's good at everything. You know, let's cut him some slack. Maybe he's really good at skee-ball. Maybe he's really good at skee-ball and (laughs) takes people on dates using it. Probably. That's actually how he and Quanan got together. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, canon. That's yeah. just... That's not canon at all. It's quantum canon. That's a great phrase, but no. Um, They got together by working in the same field. They might have met at like an assassin's conference or something. Well, maybe they were having a holiday party at a place that had skee-ball. Yeah, okay. I'll buy that. <laughs> there we go. We have decided. <laughs> Matsuo has come to the Mandarin, first for a job, but second because the Mandarin is in a particularly vulnerable position. No one takes him seriously because he has been getting his clock cleaned by Iron Man. This is great, because if you're reading this as a modern reader with the context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its retroactive impact on the comics line, you might be a little baffled at how consistently this is a mark of shame and derision. Iron Man was so profoundly B-grade in 1990. Yeah, he was totally B-list. He was just this guy that was on the Avengers a bunch. And yeah, he had his own book, but it wasn't like by any means one of the, you know, flagship comics. So yeah, Matsuo's deal is, hey, I'll sell you an awesome telepathic assassin. What do you say? 
well, first of all, the Mandarin also fails to pick up on the many ring and hand combination puns he could be making. Yeah, step up your game too, Mandarin. Right, both of them. But as all this is going on, we have what appears at first to be sort of a B-plot. You know, another plot going on that's unrelated, as we get a glimpse into the past of Betsy Braddock, the mutant named Psylocke. Or at least what initially appears to be her past. We've got a series of flashbacks, starting with the Braddocks as kids. Betsy's a fairly media classic, sort of stereotypical tomboy. She's playing in a fighter plane on a carousel while Brian, in a sweater vest, reads nearby, staunchly refusing to participate in anything that could remotely be described as fun. And I really enjoy seeing the Braddocks as kids because, you know, later on, a a bit before this, Psylocke will be this very kind of classy, feminine, refined character, and Brian will be sort of the burly, punchy, angry man. And so it's not exactly a reversal since then, but, you know... Well, it's each of them having grown up and either grown into or deliberately adopted the expectations that society and their social class and roles had for them. And actually, Sarah, I was curious. So obviously, we're here to talk mainly about Psylocke in the context of her transformation. But as far as before that, like, what was the impression that you had of Betsy Braddock, you know, before all the stuff with Quanon and the hand went down? I mean, it's super interesting because looking back at these pages, I mean, it gives me such a such a nostalgia burst. I mean, it's interesting that you guys were talking about uh, Jim Lee and the 90s aesthetic. And I just felt like immediately sort of bathed in that nostalgia down to how he draws hair. Like, I feel like a lot of the hair in these issues is so amazingly 90s. But um, along the lines of the nostalgia burst, I was reading this and thinking about how I've gotten so used to Psylocke and thinking about Psylocke and sort of, I guess, just having that visual of Psylocke that I actually haven't thought of this Betsy Braddock in a really long time. Um, And she seems, I mean, I know it's also like, these are also like not exact memories, like manipulated memories, but she seems like such a different person from what we now know is, is Psylocke, um, which is also, I guess, sort of explained a little bit with the, the mind splicing that they get into later. But, um, it almost seems like a completely different story from the Psylocke story. So I, I just thought that was interesting. I likewise, my impressions of Psylocke were firmly rooted in the latter versions. And one of the things that really surprised me going back through the earlier stuff was how many of those really had their seeds in the earlier version of the character, especially looking at her visually. She seems like she's very visually soft, I guess. Uh-huh. Like you would you would look at her character design and think caster rather than melee. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, her driving theme in her first years with the X-Men is wanting to be a fighter. Her, you know, purest distilled version of herself in the admittedly kind of terrible Horde annual is as a warrior, as someone for whom everything is stripped away but being a warrior. And that's an identity that she flirts with and finds more and more seductive and more and more and more appealing over her time with the X-Men. And especially once they move to Australia, that's been there from the start. And... I think the thing that gets overlooked with this transformation is that while it's not voluntary and it's maybe not what she would have chosen on a lot of levels, the parts of it that she sticks with most strongly and the parts of it that define her character the most going forward are the parts of it that are very much wish fulfillment fantasy for her. That's one thing uh, that I think this arc does relatively well is that even, I mean, you know, problematic elements aside, we have this big transformation going on in Betsy Braddock's life in terms of the role she's going to play with the team. And these weird little flashback things do a pretty good job of um, of making that feel a little more organic than it might otherwise. No, that's very true. I mean, at a, a sort of bigger meta level, it's almost like 
she's like, we see her wishing to be a more interesting character and then they make her a more interesting character. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Although again, in the vein of British imperialism, she gets her interestingness by effectively co-opting it from yeah, someone else. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's done in, of course, a super, super problematic way. Um, but I, that's sort of an interesting way of looking at it, especially uh, reading these flashbacks again. So in the flashbacks, what we're seeing are echoes of Silox memories, but with some modifications. So she's playing on the playground, sort of trying to play with Brian, who's refusing to. And as they're leaving, Mojo and Spiral, who are the playground attendants or versions of them, follow Betsy with something she's forgotten on the carousel, which is a ring. And she and Brian keep playing, you know, her very much playing out this tomboy thing and him being the grumpy scholar. And while she starts kind of play sword fighting with him, there's another vision that sucks them both in of them fighting as barbarians. When that ends, there's a second ring. So we begin to see kind of the pattern of how this is going to play out. They head home and immediately run into their older brother, Jamie. Jamie is a race car driver. Um, he has just shown up in a brand new Ferrari uh, Testarossa with a brand new scantily clad girlfriend and pulls up to ask the twins, Like my new toy? To which Betsy responds, She's all right. You've done better. Oh, burn. That poor lady. Like, I know she's supposed to just be here as, you know, some kind of vapid eye candy or whatever. But come on, narrator. She's a person the same as the rest of us. She is. But what I think that she's mostly there to do is play up Betsy's casual cruelty. Because what Betsy does at this point is jump into the car and Jamie basically says, you want to drive it? Betsy's like, hell yeah. So she steers and does the gear shift while he does the pedals. Jamie's date is panicking, is eventually thrown into the back seat because they're driving so violently. And they're basically both just laughing at her because for them, you know, it's all about the thrill seeking and the camaraderie. And this person is hardly even, you know, a person in context of that. And I think something that it's easy to forget, you know, Brian and Betsy grew up idolizing Jamie, who's basically super evil. He's evil Rex Racer. I mean, I know I established this earlier, but I stand by it more firmly with every appearance he makes. <laughs> and I'm really curious looking at this. Whether there's ever been a what if or an alternate universe where Betsy was allied with Jamie instead of Brian, because that is a version of the character I'd really like to see. And one that I think is a pretty good and pretty interesting there before the grace of option. Yeah, absolutely. And I think exploring those might have been those what ifs. This is a great place to do so because, you know, we're looking at what aspect of herself Betsy Braddock is going to become, at least, you know, psychologically. Speaking of aspects of herself, she'll become... Jamie's date is still begging them to stop, and they do. They pull up outside a mojo-faced castle, and Betsy suddenly is an adult, and she's specifically a very sexualized adult, and Doug Ramsey has replaced the girlfriend in the back seat and is the one trying to get her to stop. Now, to remind everyone, back in the old Alan Davis annuals from a few years before, Betsy and Doug Ramsey kind of had an almost romance going on, despite the significant age gap. Yeah, man, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> that it was. And yeah, so she just heads into this castle, leaving Doug in the dust, and we find out that it is, in fact, the body shop. We've seen the body shop before. We have. The body shop is Spiral's workroom. It's where she basically modifies people to some extent for Mojo, but it is her territory. The last major character who we saw get worked over in there was Rachel Summers, Phoenix. But Psylocke has been there before, too. It is where she got her eyes. Right, after Slaymaster ripped them out way back in the day, and we'll come back to that. It's worth noting that the body shop almost never appears the same way twice. It's always recognizable, but it has very few common physical attributes between appearances. There's kind of a, a nightmare logic to knowing that that's where you are. And so as she heads in and, you know, meets up with her friend Storm, who's also there, those two attendants from before, the more humanoid-looking Mojo and less six-armed-looking Spiral, 
bring her to this kind of makeover chair. Mojo gives us a summary of where this particular sequence is ultimately headed. Out with the old, in with the new! The medium is the message, after all! And we can't have a Westerner running the Hong Kong underworld! Art as life, I do love it so! Whoever you were, my pet, it's no longer who you are! They pour this weird goop all over her face and rip it off, and suddenly she is a new Psylocke. Yeah, she is a clearly Asian, if not more specifically defined than that woman. With We're going to get back to that specifically in just a moment, by the way. Yeah, with model perfect hair, a very slim form, legs that are basically two-thirds of her height, although I think that's just Jim Lee's art style. Yeah, no, she's basically gone from an Alan Davis design to a Jim Lee design. And so let's talk a little about, A, how this works in continuity, and B, sort of some of the larger context around it. Okay, so first continuity note. At this point, as far as we know, Psylocke has just been transformed. Official canon at this point is that she was transformed in the body shop, but here it still looks like that's just part of a hallucination sequence. I mean, I would not have assumed reading this that Spiral and Mojo were actually involved in any way. Right, it seems like they're almost a psychic metaphor for what the scientists of Matsuo and the Hand are sort of surgically doing to her. Later, this will be retconned to have been a body swap with a Japanese assassin named Kwanin. That was also the point at which Psylocke's new body first got specific ethnicity. She was just generically East Asian until then. And then at that point, she was Japanese. So the Quanon retcon was originally revealed in X-Men Volume 2, numbers 20 to 24 and 31 to 32. Quanon's deal was that she was Matsuo's girlfriend and she worked for a rival lord and was a mutant with very, very slight telepathic powers. The two of them had basically been like, okay, if we ever face each other in combat, we'll totally do the honorable duel to the death thing. We're cool with that. We're cool with that. And they ultimately did um, in a battle that ended with Quanin going off a cliff. She remained physically pretty much intact, but her mind was essentially shattered. And Matsuo's original plan was basically just to upload her into Psylocke's body, like brain that wouldn't die style. Oh, man, the one where there's the severed head and like the pan of brain juice. Yes, that was a great movie. And by great, I mean, wow, it's not a good movie. It's not an okay movie. It does have Tor Johnson in it, which is always a plus. Mm-hmm. But he made the mistake of going to Spiral for help, and Spiral went, but why just switch the minds when you could totally slice, dice, and mix and match? And so she basically just sort of spliced together bits of each of their minds and personalities in each of the bodies. So you had two women, one of whom was Quanon's original body, whose personality and memories were predominantly but not entirely Betsy Braddock's, and the other who was that combination reversed. Yeah. Now, again, to clarify... The Quanon betsy mind swap body swap deal that won't be revealed and really wouldn't be thought of for a number of years after this. For now, it just seems like Psylocke has been surgically altered, as Mojo says, so that she can be a better face of the Hong Kong underworld. So let's talk a little bit about the feel of this, because there's a lot going on right here. And Sarah, I would love to get your take on all of this. Okay. Um, yeah, this sequence was super interesting to read again. Um Just because, uh, so as you guys were saying, like, here we're starting from a place where the sort of body swap, the splice and dice hasn't really come into it yet. But um, we still have a sequence that is sort of this very on the nose embodiment of appropriation. Um, So like we were sort of talking about a little bit before we started recording Um, I don't think it's any secret that this is something that happens a lot in media where Asian stuff, quote unquote, is prized, but not Asian people. Like a really classic example is the show Firefly, where it's a sci-fi future where they throw in some Mandarin and there's some very 
Asian, again, quote unquote, Asian inspired costuming and aesthetics, but no actual Asian cast members. And then, of course, this year we've had Doctor Strange and we have Iron Fist and Ghost in the Shell on the horizon, um, which are, again, things that have a lot of Asian aesthetics. And I'm saying, quote unquote, Asian aesthetics, because that's not really a thing. It encompasses so many different cultures. Uh, but because I feel like that's about the level of thought that's usually put into it. So you have like the quote unquote Asian aesthetics, but the leads are all white or in some cases whitewashed. And this sequence is literally putting Asian stuff on a white person in the most literal way possible. You know, that transformation is like a close up of her eye. So you can really see how her eye is different. And it's just, I think in that context, especially um, in the context of so much of the things we've seen this year as far as appropriation, is really interesting um, in, I guess, both a good and a bad way. And um, one of the interesting elements about it is also that uh, a lot of times when you have this kind of appropriation, there aren't Asian faces, whereas here they are actually giving her an Asian face. Uh, but again, it's being obviously put on a white woman's body. The Quanon angle for me, making this a body swap, makes it a lot worse. We talked about um, Psylocke. I think I called her secondary mutation colonialism, and <laughs> um, which echoes a, a really great and frustrated post that I'm going to link to in the as mentioned from David Brothers on Tumblr, where he described her aptly, I think, as the literal embodiment of British imperialism, which she really, really is. Quanon, on the other hand, gets no agency in any of this. I mean, neither of them gets to choose what's done, but, you know, the result for her of a boyfriend making this decision on her behalf. Every time she objects to what's been done to her, every time she tries to resolve it, every time she tries to confront Psylocke, she's pretty much characterized and framed and treated as a villain, which is kind of mind-blowing. They will eventually achieve some degree of resolution, at which point Quanon will functionally get sidelined and then die of the legacy virus, which for me is just kind of icing on a cake of terrible. Not only is Quanon effectively stripped of her agency, of her body, of a fair complement of her memories, but she literally dies the death that was functionally intended for Betsy. That's absolutely true. Yeah, and I hadn't thought of it that way. That's a good point. Yeah, so that's a mess. And that takes Psylocke's arc and story, I think, from the appropriation and adoption of attributes to the act of theft of those things and in the process theft of representation from an existing or would have been existing Asian character. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's a thing. Um, here is a different approach. The Ultimate Universe takes a really different approach to Psylocke and Quanon, and it's one that I think is a lot better. So in the Ultimate Universe, Quanon is a teen who's been comatose and effectively brain dead for about a decade. Psylocke is a S.H.I.E.L.D. or MI5 agent, I don't recall which, and she is killed very early in one of her first appearances by David Xavier, who's sort of a you know how alternate universes almost always sort of merge Legion and Proteus. Mm -hmm. So David Xavier is that in the, the ultimate universe. And he kills Betsy and takes over her body. And Betsy's disembodied consciousness ends up finding Quanon, who is desperate to move on, but is basically tied to her comatose body because she's on life support. She's been on life support for a decade. And she basically tells Betsy, look, help me break away. Help me get free from this. You can have the body. It's clear when she reappears that Betsy has you know, resolved the situation also with Quanon's family, mm -hmm. although they never show up again. 
And for me, those aspects of it really, really, really change it. Making it voluntary, making it something that Quanon offers and a choice that both she and Betsy have agency in, but most critically that Quanon has agency in, and making it something that's not a swap, that's more of a voluntary inheritance, I think really significantly changes what it represents and what the character subsequently carries with her when she appears in the comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, with adding sort of the body swap into the mix, into actual continuity, um, you're right. It does make it a lot more problematic because I feel like the situation we have here where it is literally altering her, like altering the person that's there and pasting the Asian face on her that still has as uh, we talked about before, elements of appropriation. But when you add the sort of body splice thing into the continuity, um, I think it takes, I mean, it takes the sort of appropriation to a whole nother level because basically you're saying there was an Asian person, but as usual, the white person is more important. The white character is by default more important always. And it's so interesting because I feel like in a weird, maybe not weird, just in a way, it really reflects what's going on right now. Again, with um, a lot of the properties that I talked about before coming out with Dr. Strange and Iron Fist and Ghost in the Shell, where I've sort of heard the argument of, well, but aren't you happy because there are all these Asian side characters, or maybe there's one Asian side character. And I'm like, no, because the white person is still most important. You know, the white person is still very centered in this. Um, and it's all about their desires and their hero's journey. And they th- sort of get to drive the whole story. And as you were saying, Jay, the Asian character has no agency in that. Um, and in a weird way, it's it's almost not even like it's not even really something that I feel like is brought up. So, yes, I do think it makes that story and this origin much more problematic and much more confusing, although I guess that's not really anything new for the X-Men. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's worth noting, too, that in some of the examples you're talking about, there's also whitewashing where there's, you know, a character like Tilda Swinton as the ancient one where a character who was originally Asian is cast with a white actor. Yeah, or uh, Matoka Kusanagi from Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, no, I think that's probably the most egregious example yeah. of the batch. And I, I think what's interesting about that, well, not again, like I feel like we use this word interesting, like it's a sort of a blanket for actually really disturbing. I feel like when that comes up, like particularly with the Tilda Swinton example, the excuse that was sort of given over and over was that if this character was still Asian, they would be a stereotype. And it just makes me kind of frustrated that that doesn't make anyone think, well, maybe we should rethink this property. Like maybe we should rethink this character and how it is of a time. And I think there are things um, that we'll sort of get into later about this arc that are problematic for the time. But maybe if you, you know, if you think about them, you might be able to forgive a little bit because it is of the time. Whereas now it's sort of like, but if you're adapting this now, you actually have to think about those things and take them into consideration. Well, and the people who you hear say it's a good thing they changed, you know, the ancient one because it's a stereotype, never add they should have changed Doctor Strange because the white guy who comes in and is automatically the best at someone else's culture is also a real overplayed trope. <laughs> right, blue avatar yeah. syndrome dances right. with wolves. If, if we're, if we're concerned, well, like if what we are actually concerned with is tired stereotypes and tropes, you know, for that argument to hold water, it has to apply universally, and it absolutely doesn't. It's basically 
only ever used in one direction. Yeah, no, it's very true. And I mean, I think it's it's always super telling that the people who make those arguments are the people who see themselves represented all the time. Um, so it's not like they really have to worry about, you know, maybe this portrayal of a straight cis white guy is going to be stereotypes. Like, well, you have like a million to choose from, so it's not really a problem. But uh, yeah, I don't think any of the arguments really hold water. And it's interesting to look at this whole Psylocke storyline sort of in that context, in the context of what's happening now um, and how this is sort of a very early example of a lot of different kinds of appropriation and a lot of different kinds of sort of sidelining actual Asian characters. Um, And, you know, it's also just funny that I almost feel like they added the whole brain splice thing to be like, this is why Psylocke has ninja skills now. Right. You try to make sense of one plot element and in turn make a bunch more way more confusing. Oh, come on. The hand has been mucking around in her head. They could reasonably easily just have given them to her. Obviously, they are working from a template considering that she's just palette swapped Electra. There is actually Visually. an Electra action figure and a Psylocke action figure that use the exact same mold. It's yep. just that one has a purple swimsuit and one has a red swimsuit. They're painted the same. T- <laughs> they're, they're, they're painted the same aside from their costumes, too, because they've both got black hair. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's ridiculous. So I would assume that the easy explanation for this would have been the hand. It's also worth noting that not the body swap, but just the sort of paced up race change thing is something that we've seen in Claremont's X-Men before. Right. We have seen that with Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander back in the Demon Bear saga. They were transformed from people who were white to people who looked visually to be Native American. Yeah, specifically Cheyenne. That's weird to unpack, but it's offset, I think, by the fact that they're not really the main characters of that story and by the fact that the main character of the story is actually a Cheyenne girl. Yeah, I think I think that helps a lot in the Demon Bear saga. And I'll be curious to see how they handle that in the New Mutants movie, which it looks like is going to be based on the Demon Bear saga. I am going to bet that they just don't go there. I'm going to hope they just don't go there. With Tom and Sharon, probably yeah. for the best. Or, they, or that they find, they find a way to work around that in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Now, there is one more thing I want um, to talk briefly about before we jump back into the plot, which is that uh, Jim Lee, the artist that draws this arc and was partially responsible for designing the new Psylocke along with Chris Claremont, is Korean-American. And in terms of the issue of appropriation, I guess I'm curious uh, what everyone's take is on that, whether that impacts the issue at all in the storyline. I mean, you mentioned that you had done some research and that specifically this was a product of Jim Lee wanting to do a sexy ninja character. Rumor has it that part of it was that part of it was just Chris Claremont, you know, with yet another body swap and brainwashing plot. I honestly don't know. And that's something that I would really be interested in talking to Jim Lee about. I think gender politics play into that, too, pretty significantly, Mm -hmm. just because I mean, this is, I think, a point where looking at this intersectionally becomes really, really critical because the specific sort of appropriation and objectification of Asian women's bodies is very specific to Asian women. And it's very specifically something that Asian women are subject to. And that that kind of fetishization and those traditions are are something Psylocke falls into. I think it's significant and important to look at the fact that Jim Lee is a Korean-American artist. I think the fact that he's a male artist is also an important aspect of what he's bringing to this character and her representation. Yeah, that's a good point. With all of that in mind and informing our read as we go forward, we get our first glimpse of Psylocke in the real world, not her hallucinations. She is suspended in a huge sensory deprivation tank. She's wearing a breathing apparatus. She's got divers swimming around her. And um, 
Mandarin and Matsuo are watching and waiting for her to successfully make contact with the Upside Down. <laughs> we just finished Stranger Things, finally. It was so good. It is. It is so good. And we learn a little bit about what she's doing here and how she ended up here. Right. So apparently what's going on is that after Matsuo found her, when she came out of the Siege Perilous and washed up on a hand-controlled beach, I guess they have beaches? Why not? They have everything else. He started working on her with his staff psychic to basically break down and rebuild her mind to forge her into the perfect psychic assassin. And so, yeah, that's basically what they're doing. And as she gets each of these rings, clearly the rings that the Mandarin uses normally, that's basically another step toward her becoming what they want her to be. Kind of like the Bloodstones were steps toward Ilyana Rasputin being turned into a demon queen back in the Magic miniseries. Except that stuff was literally physically happening and Psylocke is just imagining this or it's just happening in her head. And specifically what's happening in her head, she's reminiscing about her brief time as Captain Britain. And she's now, by the way, suddenly wearing the Jim Lee Design swimsuit outfit that she will be wearing for years and years, complete with its deeply impractical straps. As she says, Poor little mayfly hero girl. But I wasn't good enough. I was too soft, too sentimental, too weak. And that basically is the summary of what she's trying to get away from and what the hand is trying to get her away from. And in fact, she stops being sentimental because in her mindscape, she goes through and kills each of the other X-Men that she pushed through the Siege Perilous for rings that they have. And these rings, God, these rings have super goofy names. There's, you know, this very serious sequence and these very dramatic fights. And then she's talking about like the... The Mento Intensifier. The Mento Intensifier. You have to be careful not to mix that with the Coke Intensifier ring. Or else it'll (laughs) sort of explode. That's true. Yeah, yeah. It's bad news. But it's interesting to me here that as she kills each of the X-Men, they're each in their own circumstances. So, for instance, Colossus is painting in a gallery in Soho. Havoc is running away from magistrates in Genosha. Rogue and Carol Danvers have apparently killed each other. And these are all rough analogs for where we're going to see these X-Men when they emerge from the Siege Perilous. Because Betsy has, even before she was a telepath, she had precognitive power. She could see little glimpses of the future. And I like that Claremont remembers to throw that in here, in addition to giving us a little look ahead at what's going to happen. She's planning to go after Captain Britain next, but there's a sudden twist. Slaymaster has beaten her to the job. He has already killed Captain Britain for his ring. Betsy isn't expecting this, and neither, as it turns out, is Matsuo. Right. He think, he says that there's some sort of outside element in Betsy's mind. Now, it's interesting that this manifests as Slaymaster because he's probably the person who has had the most traumatic impact on Betsy's life, or at least he's up there. When she was Captain Britain briefly, he ended that career by ripping out her eyes. That's why Mojo and Spiral gave her robot eyes years later. Good times all around. So it's interesting that Slaymaster is what they see as an outside element, not, you know, Mojo and Spiral, who are the actual outside elements that will turn out to have been involved. Like, Slaymaster is just part of Betsy's hallucination. So I wonder if instead of outside element, Claremont actually meant, like, unforeseen complication. Well, maybe, but we should also remember that the Shadow King is behind basically everything during this era. Ugh, that guy. (laughs) That guy. So regardless, at this point in continuity, it's still very much ambiguous. And Slaymaster, too, is not only after Betsy's, you know, he's not only attacking Betsy physically, but he's decided to go for the kill shot on her self-confidence. Do you think because you don the garb of a warrior, take on the airs of a warrior, that, hey, presto, you become a warrior? How frail the girlish dream, the girl herself, before the true, terrible reality. You can change your costume. You can even change your ethnicity. But never will you sport a mustache like mine. Yeah, basically that. But yeah, at this point, he rips out her eyes again. Uncool. That that trauma is repeated. 
And once again, she is able to push through. She shatters his face and body with her sudden new ninjutsu skills and reveals the Mandarin beneath. And she mentions that she doesn't need her eyes to see. She's a telepath. And in fact, while she was blind for years, she did use her telepathy to see through other people's eyes and other people's perceptions. And she demonstrates that she also, in addition to those ninja skills, still very much has that offensive telepathy. Your mind may control the ring, but mine, through my telepathy, controls your thoughts. And she basically makes the Mandarin take his rings and fry his own face off. I like that she specifically explains that she controls his thoughts through telepathy as opposed to like funny hats <laughs> or just really strong suggestion or, or maybe like... Yeah, I like that she feels the need to specify that. Mm -hmm. It's very Claremont. Well, regardless, we also have Mojo and Spiral as sort of the peanut gallery here, which I enjoy. As Mojo says, Wicked wee Psylocke, her dance is almost as twisty-turvy Spiral as yours! I'll take that as a compliment. But now our girls won the day. What comes next? Why we give her inner eyes to match the outer ones we gave her long ago, so she can see and act as clearly as we. Can't walk the wild ways, after all, without mojo eyes to show the way. And we get another inversion. Back in the real world, the scuba team and the telepath are all dead. And Psylocke falls to her knees before the Mandarin, returning his rings and swearing him her fealty. And so, yeah, Psylocke is now Lady Mandarin. She is now this psychic assassin they've been trying to build with, you know, a few twists. And that's where we start number 257 with her in this sort of kick-ass new futuristic-looking armor confronting a bunch of the crime lords in Hong Kong. Not only is it futuristic armor, but one of the touches of it that I really, really like is that it's got a mask that very, very specifically evokes the psychic butterfly that previously appeared around her face when she used her powers. That's a nice bit of visual consistency between Psylocke's previous appearance and Psylocke's current appearance. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, the folks gathered around her are the lords of the Hong Kong underworld, and um, she is trying to get them to repledge fealty to the Mandarin. They are not interested. They feel like the Mandarin no longer has any credibility because he let Iron Man kick his ass. And she, as a newcomer, has even less. And Psylocke responds by beating the living hell out of all of them. Yeah, like they bring all of their various hench people up and she just, I'm not sure if she kills or just knocks out all of them, but she does take them all out. She's killing them. She deliberately only leaves a handful alive. This is a truly brutal era of X-Men. And again, we're in 1990 as of this issue right here. So there you have it. So I want to talk a little bit about Jim Lee's women at this point, which sounds like it's going to go in a slightly different direction than it actually is. <laughs> but they've always felt really paradoxical to me because on one hand, they tend to be very, very, very sexualized. But on the other hand, they also tend to be very visibly physically strong. Yeah, the Psylocke we see in this scene looks genuinely intimidating, and I would say that in terms of those two qualities, that strength, that intimidation comes through a lot more than the sexualization. And I've talked about this in context of Liefeld, too, but one of the things that strikes me about Lee and sort of, we talk a lot about extreme dimorphism and the ways that male and female characters are exaggerated, and male characters tend to be exaggerated in ways that make them look stronger, and female characters tend to be exaggerated in ways that make them look sexier or more sexualized. Mm -hmm. And... One of the big tenets of the 90s for reference for both genders tended to be bodybuilders. You see, again, sort of very, very extreme, exaggerated dimorphism, but in ways that very much reflect a really specific athletic aesthetic that tends to be sex specific. That always sits really oddly with me, and I'm never quite sure how to approach it exactly. It seems almost a little better or a little more even than you usually get. Mm hmm. But it's a visual and artistic trend that very much starts to come into play right now. Um, 
a lot of the time in earlier art, especially, you see things like, and some of this is the result of beauty standards and standards for attractiveness and, you know, appearances of strength changing over time. Like, for example, you don't see six packs in the 50s, 60s, early 70s at all. The sex symbols then just that's not a thing. Well, I remember, uh, what was it? George Reeves, the first guy to play Superman. Like he's this big barrel chested dude. Very different than, you know, what a bodybuilder would be considered today. Yeah. I mean, Burt Reynolds is a sex symbol. Burt Reynolds is totally a sex symbol. Look yeah, at no, mustache. he is. He is a sex symbol and his mustache is a sex symbol. And with their powers combined, they are unstoppable. <laughs> so Brett White has briefs with pictures of, oh, no, they're Tom Selleck, not Burt Reynolds. You know, the other impressive mustache guy. I mix them up sometimes, but um, they're amazing. I totally lost my train of thought. Psylocke, um, objectification, right, bodybuilders. And before, you'd see more in the way of articulated muscles on male characters and much, much more rarely on female characters. Female characters tended to be sort of a lot more curves and smooth lines. And while, again, we still have that exaggerated dimorphism and we still have a lot of sexualization, this feels in some ways to me like kind of a step forward Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we're at least seeing female characters who do look coded as athletic. Yeah, I mean, I I think we sometimes give Jim Lee a lot of shit just because he typifies the 90s style that isn't always our jam. But I got to say that guy as an artist does a whole lot right. And especially in this era, that's the case. Yeah, he's an artist who I think is one of many of his generation whose earlier work I like a bit more because it's a bit more expressive before it's sort of locked into his style. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so once Psylocke has intimidated the hell out of these crime lords by killing all their dudes, she goes and does some training with some ninjas back at Hand HQ. And this is where we see a very important Psylocke uh, plot point that's going to come up again and again, her psychic knife. At this point, it is still only the ultimate focus of her psionic powers. It will eventually become their focus totality, but we're not quite there yet. One of uh, Claremont's favorite phrases about Psylocke. And well, about psychic powers in general. You see Jean use it a lot, too. True. And as uh, Psylocke, you know, decompresses after this training match in yet another 90s female character on screen bath, Matsuo tells her about her next mission, which is to take out a dude named Patch who's coming into town. There is a lot of bathtub denouement in there, this era there of really X-Men. Is. It's true. That's the thing. And it's only ever women. Like, do male X-Men characters not bathe or do they just not have conversations in the tub? It's an oddly specific thing. And it strikes me as so obnoxious, like that your boss follows you into the bath to give you a briefing. Like, for fuck's sake, man. I mean, at least he doesn't follow her. That's me time. That's me time. At least he doesn't follow her into the toilet stall or something. That'd be even worse. That you know of. Oh, that's true. That might just be off panel. But anyway, uh, yeah, Matsuo is telling Betsy about Patch. And in fact, that's where the rest of the plot line of this arc starts, because Wolverine and Jubilee are taking a ship to Hong Kong on their quest to find the other X-Men. Wolverine has decided that this is the place to start looking. Why? We don't know. He just has. And... Jubilee is not going to argue with him, considering that he is pretty much out of his head. Yeah, he's been having hallucinations of Carol Danvers and Nick Fury talking to him. Jubilee's starting to realize what's going on, that he's talking to people that aren't there, and she's a little concerned. He hasn't slept in days, and he's still really severely injured. His current state of mind, it's implied pretty heavily, is the result not only of getting tortured extensively by the Reavers and subsequent complications, but the fact that that has basically burned out his healing factor. It's easy to forget, considering that he's basically nigh invulnerable these days, blasting or otherwise, that Wolverine's healing factor used to be a lot less powerful and it used to burn out fairly easily if he was recovering from a major injury. But he is still in good enough shape to don that eye patch and suit and tell the harbor guard that, hey, he's got business here. They recognize him as patch. They totally let him through because dude's got a rep. Jubilee, on the other hand, is a little bit less impressed with that disguise. Whoa, an eye patch? I'm impressed. 
Jubilation Lee, you speak for us all on this issue. She kind of does in this whole arc. I mean, she does that a lot, but Jubilee is... Jubilee is one of those weird points where I feel like Claremont is simultaneously one of the most and least self-aware writers in comics. Mm -hmm. Because she echoes a lot of my concerns and questions with the plotline, but the plotline's still the (laughs) plotline. Exactly, and that happens very much here. So they head into Hong Kong to specifically the Hong Kong branch of Landau, Luckman, Lake. Those are the weird, like, time-traveling-ish lawyer types that we saw in the Wolverine ongoing. Yes, they are a wacky trans-dimensional law firm. They are centuries old. They may or may not be evil. They're one of those mysteries that have never been delved in that deeply in the Marvel Universe. Someday someone will take them very, very far. I kind of think they need their own maxi-series, like Fallen Angel style. Would it be them and maybe, like, the clone X-Men in Broodspace? Oh, man, that would be an unexpected crossover. I would read the hell out of that. But while Wolverine talks to Rose Wu, who's a Landau Luckman and Lake staffer that we'll see more of uh, in later Wolverine comics, Jubilee goes off with Rose's granddaughter. And here's another point that I definitely want to look at because she goes off into, you know, the Hong Kong streets to go shopping. So for Jubilee, this is a weird and kind of loaded trip because her parents are Chinese immigrants. And she says something here that implies they might specifically be from Hong Kong, although I don't think that's ever actually established concretely in the comics. I may be mistaken. If you know specifically, let me know, because that's a significant difference at this point. This is 1990, so Hong Kong would still have been a British protectorate and there would have been a pretty distinct cultural divide. Mm -hmm. But regardless, it's strange for Jubilee to be here. And in fact, she and her friend are confronted by some random street toughs who accuse her of being what they call her a Yankee banana, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Is that a real insult? Yeah, banana is a slang word that is a slur that's a thing. And um, I think when I read this arc when I was a kid, I didn't know what that meant. Um, I didn't learn that until later, whereas now when I reread it, I was actually sort of weirdly impressed that they knew what that was um, and threw it in here. But I think, um, as you guys mentioned, having Jubilee in this story um, kind of gives it a really interesting element because they do actually deal with the fact that this is where her parents from and that she's sort of coming here for the first time. And I guess what's interesting is, you know, she is a, a groundbreaking character because she is so, quote unquote, American. You know, she talks about wanting to go to the mall Um, she uses all the slang and here it's interesting to watch. It was interesting for me anyway, to see her, her sort of main thing, in addition to speaking for the reader, as you mentioned, Jay, to see her main thing being that she keeps reasserting her Americanness, um, and kind of rejecting everything that's presented to her that's Chinese, Um, And I think that might mirror the experience of a lot of Asian American kids where, or at least this is how I felt a lot, where you feel like you're sort of caught between two things. You look one way, you look a way that's not considered American by a lot of people, but you don't necessarily feel like you're as maybe in touch with your, with the Asian side of your culture. And I think that a lot of it, at least I went through a period where I felt like I had to keep asserting my Americanness, like to keep reminding people that I was, that I'm American, that, you know, I am the third generation of Japanese American family born here and that I had experiences that I thought were very American. Um, so I think it's, it's just interesting that throughout these issues, she keeps sort of reasserting that in a very, um, I guess, aggressive way. 
And uh, I feel like it reflects something that is a, sort of a true life experience for a lot of people. I do think there are some some problematic elements of it, like that everything she's presented with that even remotely Chinese is sort of evil and threatening. Right. Like later um, on, the, the Mandarin <laughs> confronts her and that's where she gets the most aggressive about that. But I think that it's interesting that that they dealt with it, I guess. Like looking back at it now, I was actually impressed that they dealt with it at all. You talked about that experience, and I want to direct listeners toward a couple comics, actually, that focus really heavily on that in some really cool ways. The current Ms. Marvel series um, yes. from a Pakistani-American perspective, but also Jean Luen Yang's American Born Chinese, which is very specifically about that relationship to American culture. Yeah, it's also just an excellent comic in general. Yeah, it's a phenomenal work and one of those things that you should read, especially if it's outside of your cultural frame of reference. Speaking of Jubilee, we forgot to mention something really important. Oh, right. Her and, outfit. Right. I do. I, uh, I love the extent to which we just become 10 year old girls when we talk about this stuff. But this, fashion's important. This is important because it's the first time that we see something approaching what's going to become Jubilee's iconic outfit. The like knee length, short sleeved yellow coat and the, the shorts and shirt. Although instead of um, pink at this point. She's specifically dressed in robin colors, isn't she? Right. Later on, she'll have a yellow coat, a pink shirt, and blue jean shorts. Right now, instead, that's yellow, red, and green. She looks very much like Robin, which is interesting since she's essentially Wolverine's sidekick, specifically like Carrie Kelly from The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, I was going to say, she's basically doing Carrie Kelly stealth cosplay, which honestly is a detail I kind of love in here. Yeah, and as much as I enjoy Jubilee's makeshift, like, 80s X-Men part scavenged costume, like, this look just is Jubilee, straight up. I could also 100% see her doing the Carrie Kelly thing on purpose. Do you think she's that pop culture savvy? Like, that specific type of pop culture? I think she's that generally pop culture savvy. And um, we're going to, you know, learn that Wolverine, at least, is somewhat Batman savvy later in this arc. And I assume because he's Wolverine that he just picked that up from her, so... (laughs) Man, I gotta say, though, like, this arc, so the three main characters are Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee, and Psylocke and Jubilee both get their sort of iconic 90s designs. They're also two very 90s characters. Like, we have literally hit the first issue of X-Men that was set in a year that started with 199, and it's already just so 1990s. Which is funny, because 1990 is technically the last year of the 80s. Even so, even so. So, yes, as all this is going on, Logan has learned a bit from Landau, Luckman, and Lake about what's up in town. He's waiting on a ship in the harbor, sort of pondering what to do next, smoking, and then hacking his lungs out because no healing factory equals cigars don't work as well. And that's why you shouldn't smoke, boys and girls. It's an ongoing gag that one of Wolverine's younger charges or teammates will borrow his cigars and discover that you really just can't do that without a healing factor. There's actually a great scene as he throws the cigar off the ship and it hits the head of a ninja who's stealthily climbing up the side. Yeah, despite being down his healing factor, he does still manage to kill the hell out of some ninjas. And Jubilee shows up near the end of the fight, ostensibly to help him by dazzling the ninjas with fireworks, until it turns out that she is in fact being controlled by none other than Lady Mandarin. Right, Psylocke herself. And so Wolverine and Lady Mandarin fight. And Wolverine pretty quickly realizes, wait a minute, she looks different, but I know this lady. This is Betsy Braddock. This is my teammate. So, Miles, you read this as underlining the idea that she had been surgically altered rather than having her body swapped. I don't think that that's a particularly compelling argument for it because this is Wolverine. Wolverine can smell the authenticity of the cloned corpse of his teenage teammate. Wolverine can smell the presence of Storm's mind in a demonic snake in a fake inferno. 
I assume that Wolverine can just sort of smell Psylocke's mind or possibly that he's recognizing her based on facial expressions and physical mannerisms rather than her actual appearance. It's possible, yeah. He does mention that he's surprised to see that face, but that could very well just be, like you said, mannerisms, expressions, whatever. You know, regardless. I mean, it's clear the intent at this point was not the body swap retcon, so you could really read it either way. But regardless, they fight, he's doing alright, until she psychic knifes him right in the head and totally takes him out. Dang, and that brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 258, Broken Chains, whose title effectively sums up what's going to happen in it, so we can just skip on to questions now. Right, right? exactly, we're done. Oh, I guess we should talk in a little more detail. Alright, so Wolverine now is in the sensory deprivation tank, and he is getting his turn with the Upside Down. Psylocke is horrified at what the hand is doing to him. It's the first time we've really seen her react with any degree of compassion or awareness of, you know, her former identity. Now, part of that may just be because with the previous psychic having died, she is now the psychic sort of guiding him through this journey to become a brainwashed assassin. And so all of the panic that he's feeling, I think Matsuo mentions that this is because with his heightened senses, sensory deprivation must be hell. She's feeling that as well. But wouldn't sensory deprivation also be harder for him given his heightened senses? I mean, there are divers in the tank. He'd feel the motion of water currents and stuff. Well, the hand is like really, really good at sensory deprivation. That actually comes up as a plot point. Would you say that they are hand Handy with it? That's handy work. Yes, 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 I will. Oh, man, you went straight to orgasmo there. I'll reference orgasmo whenever I possibly can, especially obtusely. And so this doesn't work out for very long because Wolverine freaks out and his freak out goes into Betsy's mind and her freak out sends a bunch of the nearby soldiers and guards into a frenzy. Everybody starts killing everybody and Logan bursts out of the sensory deprivation tank. Oh, and Jubilee is adding to the kiss with her fireworks. And I want to go to that because she has the best line ever. Right, as she's trying to escape while zapping them, she says, What's the matter, dudes? Like, you kicky kinko killers never seen a real live, good old-fashioned all-American mutant fireworks display? Kicky kinko killers? Kicky kinko killers. God, that's a good tongue twister. It is. Kicky kinko killers. I want Jubilee to talk all the time. I love the way Claremont writes her. Kicky kinko killers. Kicky kinko killers. Now, she attempts to escape, even sliding on what she refers to as the Death Star floors of this place, but she stops by the Mandarin himself. And there's brief hilarious confusion around the ninjas and who's in charge. It's sort of like when two people try to use the photocopier at once, only with murder. Right, because the ninjas are like, hey, she belongs to us and Matsuo, and the Mandarin says, screw you guys, I'll kill you all. At which point he does, and then scolds Matsuo for not having a better leash on his ninjas. He's like, uh, sorry, dude, I'll do better next time. Now, here's some of the stuff that we were talking about before uh, that, that you mentioned, Sarah, because having captured Jubilee, the Mandarin has one of his assistants dress her up in what I assume is supposed to be a very traditional Chinese sort of aristocratic outfit, complete with some really intense makeup. And at this point, she just really asserts that she doesn't speak Chinese, just American. It's that like hardcore rebellion against her heritage that the Mandarin seems to see as more valid than she does. This sequence sort of plays into what I was saying earlier and what you guys just said about how um, she is like going into her rebellion thing and once again reasserting her Americanness, but maybe doing so in a way that kind of insults her Asian heritage. Um, but I think that, you know, whether it's intentional or not, I think that is very realistic to a phase that I think a lot of us kind of go through. So it's interesting. Well, it seems like, you know, from what you're describing and the experiences that you've described, it seems like being stuck with a lot of false binaries. I mean, the where are you from insinuates that the answer can't be here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's something um, that we can talk a little bit more about as far as Psylocke later, because 
there are so many false binaries that are sort of contained in her. And um, as uh, I talked about a little bit before the show, um, there is something about Psylocke that actually represents a certain struggle within Asian American identity. Um, But as far as Jubilee here, I do think it's actually interesting that they address the idea that she's so dedicated for them to see her as an American and as an American superhero and with a lot of cool one-liners who's shooting fireworks out of her hands. So as Jubilee is facing off against the Mandarin, um, meanwhile, in Wolverine's head, it's time for some good old brainwashing via psychic seduction. He sees these dream versions of Jean Grey, Mariko Yashida, and Yukio all telling Wolverine that they're his, he should take what's his. And so he guts them. Now, what interests me here is that they're described as, quote, all the women Wolverines truly loved. Well, you know, with the exception of Silver Fox, Heather Hudson, Rose O'Hara, Dawkins' mom, etc., and so forth, and on and on and on, because Wolverine is basically adamantium Captain Kirk. Basically. With a similar fatality rate. Now, this sort of every woman that they merge into, as Wolverine guts her, she becomes Psylocke, and then they fight in his head as well. And And she once again stabs him in the head within his mind with her psychic knife, which has to create some pretty interesting feedback loops. And in fact does, because in the real world, she is promptly physically attacked by Wolverine's hallucinations of Carol Danvers and Nick Fury. Okay, that's actually just kind of an awesome take on telepathy. I love this. I love this so much. I love that at this point, her mind is so deeply enmeshed with Wolverine's that she is perceiving his hallucinations, things he knows to be hallucinations, as real, and they're actually hurting her. And so it's just utter carnage at this point. I mean, Wolverine's breaking out of the tank and killing everyone. Psylocke is freaking out. Um, The visions of, like, Nick Fury are shooting ninjas who are actually falling because, as it turns out, since Betsy perceives that, she's telepathically taking them down when the visions attack. Just entirely unconsciously. And I love that. I love that mechanic. It's kind of nonsense, but it's also kind of genius. You know, I always come back to the same thing. It doesn't have to make sense if it's awesome. It's pretty awesome. Psylocke apparently manages to take Wolverine down, and we next see her delivering his body to a very pleased Mandarin. Jubilee is less pleased. In fact, she is so upset that she spontaneously blows up half the building. Because as we've seen so often with Jubilee, and we'll see even more in the future, her powers are way more intense than usually manifest. Psylocke takes Jubilee's explosion as her opportunity to attack the Mandarin. She was, in fact, faking. Wolverine is okay, and the two of them have decided they're going to team up and take the Mandarin out together. And they manage to pretty quickly, actually. Wolverine does the whole one claw, two claw, want to go for three, where he extends, you know, his outer claws around the Mandarin's head. And then he quotes Jack Nicholson in Batman. Tell me, bub, you ever dance with the devil by the pale moonlight? Why does Wolverine do this? This is not a Wolverine thing to do. He does it because it's 1990. That's the only reason. It's really a shame that it wasn't 1992, by which point Wayne's World would have been out and he could have done, like, the manager Glenn's speech from the donut shop, you know, when you kill a man in the dead of winter and so forth. (laughs) That would be amazing. Which is totally a Wolverine speech. But I actually have a theory about why he pulls the Jack Nicholson line. So he's been hanging out with Jubilee, right? Mm-hmm. And I assume that, A, she's been trying to convince him that this would be a cool line to use because she's Jubilee and thinks everything should be a pop culture reference. And B, it's possible that either she convinced him of this in his fever adult state or he lost a bet. <laughs> and Wolverine would honor a lost bet even to Jubilee. He would. And he mentioned, you know, the Mandarin says, you know, what the hell are you talking about? And Wolverine responds to the effect of, ah, it doesn't make any sense to me either. <laughs> yup. 
But regardless, that's basically the resolution to this story. And we find out as Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee sail away that Wolverine's strategy was figuring that his mind was so messed up that if Psylocke's mind contacted it, either it would sort of incapacitate her with all of the intensity and chaos, or it would somehow cure her telepathically. It would glitch her out so hard that she had to hard reboot, basically. Right. And I do enjoy that Jubilee is just as skeptical of this as a modern reader might be. So, like, let me get this straight, okay? When Betsy zapped into your head, that somehow, like, miraculously sorted out all of Natsu's stuff in hers and shocked her back to normal? Be real. It could be a trick. She's a telepath. She could be playing with your head. And we'll see this suspicion in Jubilee of Psylocke going forward a fair bit, since this is now, you know, basically all we have of the X-Men as a team. And Logan keys in on this. Betsy, for her part, isn't sure that she has a place on the X-Men anymore either, considering that she's the one who threw them through the Siege Perilous, and Logan disagrees. Then here's your chance to make amends. Betsy, we're a team. While we live, Xavier's dream lives. It's that simple. That important. You remember how years later they were on a preemptive assassination team together? I bet during that time they looked back at this moment a lot and laughed. But yeah, so that's what we have for the transformation of Psylocke, for the Uncanny X-Men crossover into Acts of Vengeance, hence, you know, fighting a supervillain not their own. And I gotta say, like, this story is so problematic in so many ways and so awesome in so many other ways, and it's really hard to have, like, a takeaway opinion of the whole thing. The Mindscape stuff is great. A lot of the mechanics of the storytelling in this arc are really good and really innovative. And again, we have Claremont working with a new artist and going in directions that I I don't think he necessarily would have gone with someone else. Now, Sarah, we talked already about some of the sort of problematic aspects of the story. But before the episode, we were talking about a few other elements as well. And I'd love to uh, talk about those a little bit. So, yes, I I agree that um, this arc and, you know, just Psylocke as a character in general um, super problematic, has a lot of problematic elements, but actually has some positive elements as well. And I think one of the really, I, I feel like I keep saying the word interesting, but I can't think of like a better word to go in there. But um, one of the interesting things about this whole thing to me about sort of like the whole Psylocke caboodle is uh, in this piece that uh, Jennifer de Guzman wrote about Psylocke, I think it's called uh, Psylocke and Me, Totally Problematic. And we'll link to that um, in the visual companion. Great. Um, and it's sort of about um, using Psylocke as a metaphor for um, the mixed race Asian experience, which uh, I'm Hapa, I'm half Japanese, so I have that experience as well. And I think that there is also something about her that is a bit of a metaphor for a lot of, you know, again, probably not intentional, but for some Asian American experience. And it's sort of the same thing uh, I was talking about with Jubilee, where sometimes when you are Asian American, and again, I don't want to speak for like all Asian Americans everywhere, but this is something that I've certainly felt in my experience and that other people I know have felt is that sometimes there is a thing where you feel like you're not Asian enough. Um, you feel like, you know, inside you are not Asian enough. Uh, but then at the same time, you're not really thought of as the sort of classic American because you have this face. Uh, anyone who looks Asian is still considered foreign, outsider, other. And it's a weird place to be in. Um, it's sort of the, that weird, um, as you were saying early, earlier, Jay, like it's something that because so many things are put into such like 
binary terms, it's a tough thing to negotiate. And there is something about Psylocke complete with this messed up origin story that kind of represents that. Um, and then another thing that um, Jennifer brought up that I think is is very true is that um, this character now walks through the world with the appearance of an Asian woman. So even if it's not shown in the story, that does affect her every experience. Uh, people aren't seeing Betsy Braddock, white English lady. Um, they're seeing a Japanese woman and they'll react to what they see. And so I'm guessing that even if it's not on the page, Psylocke does get those questions I was talking about earlier that I always get. Um, where are you from? Why is your English so good? What are you? Um, and oh, that is something that does inform my Asian American identity. Um, so, you know, as problematic as she is, um, Psylocke is not a character that I can totally dismiss. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, Again, when I was reading this when I was younger, I think with this and probably so many other stories, I didn't understand how problematic it was. I just, you know, was enjoying the the special X-Men brand of convoluted awesome. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, the visual representation, especially in comics, is still important. And I don't think I understood that. This is an extremely problematic way to get there, especially as we were talking about with the body swap stuff that came up later. But the fact that there was suddenly another Asian lady superhero in my superhero comics and that I could see her was kind of awesome. And even reading this again now, um, especially that that sequence at the end of the last issue where she's fighting and Jubilee's watching and there are a couple panels of them together and you know, even though Jubilee is uh, suspicious of her again later, they are for that moment on the same side and fighting the same battle. Even now, that's cool to see, honestly. Like, I feel like seeing two Asian lady superheroes is just, you know, sort of as comrades in arms is so rare. I mean, we see it in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and that's really awesome and I enjoy that. But it still feels like, honestly, kind of a treat, just that visual representation so I know that like sometimes it's come up the idea of possibly taking Psylocke back, like returning her to sort of the white blonde Betsy Braddock because this character is so problematic. And that's not something that I'm actually for. I think um, the visual representation is still important as long as we can acknowledge the sort of problematic way we got there. And like I was saying beforehand, a lot of times when we see that thing in media where it is Asian stuff put on a white person or put, you know, or a white people in an Asian setting or whatever it is, it's without Asian faces. And here we do have an Asian face. So, you know, to me as a kid, that was something. And even to me now, that's something. So I have a, a kind of tangential question to that. How would you as a writer approach writing Psylocke? Oh, God. <laughs> I know that's a big one. You should just transcribe like... And then she laughed with terror for 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, I feel like <laughs> if I were going to do that, I I would just want to address the elephant in the room. I would want to, like, explore why the origin is problematic and have maybe her look at that. Like, maybe show more of her experiences as someone who was not born an Asian woman, but is now going through the world as an Asian woman and, you know, what that's like. I don't think it's something that 
has ever, I mean, I know that like it's talked a lot about in fandom, um, but I don't know that it's ever been addressed like in that way in the comics. Um, So I feel like rather than ignoring it or rather than acting like, okay, well, this is what she is now. So let's deal with it. I would sort of want to look at like what it's like for that person. Like, what is it like to previously have been this woman who has every privilege um, and then going to someone who, you know, is still an X-Men, so is still really hot and sexy, but doesn't have those things. Um, what is that like? And what does that mean? And how does she sort of acknowledge it and navigate it? And of course, you know, since this is still the X-Men, it would, it would have to be done in a super fun and, you know, with a lot of like awesome fight scenes and battle, which, you know, I also, I love writing awesome fight scenes and awesome battles and everything like that. But, um, I think, I guess my sort of like short answer contained in this long convoluted rambling answer would be that I would just want her to acknowledge it and address it and like acknowledge that it's a thing. What you're saying reminds me a lot of the things that Greg Pak did in the early issues of his Storm series. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. As far as describing Storm's relationship and the uh, tribe she was working with's relationship with her as a goddess, that concept. Yeah. And looking at, at again, some of the more culturally obtuse aspects of her origin and the ways those played out, the more sort of colonialist fantasy aspects. And again, it's obviously a very different context, but I think it's you know, Pac's work there is a great piece of evidence that you can unearth and go back to that stuff and find rich narrative material within it and also address it. Yeah, for sure. I know. I think that's a really good example of that. Um, And I think not to belabor the point too much, but I wish that's what creators would do when they are taking a property or a character that has some really dated aspects. Like I wish they had done that with Iron Fist. I wish they had done that with Doctor Strange. Instead of always saying, well, this is how it is in the comics, I wish that more modern creators would sort of address those old, outdated aspects of characters and see how they could. I mean, you know, that should be like a fun challenge, right? Like, how can I update this and sort of acknowledge it, but also move past it? So that's just something I wish more people would do. Now, that actually segues nicely, if not necessarily in, uh, in, in positive ways, toward our first question, uh, which is from an anonymous listener on Tumblr. They ask, do you know why Psylocke has been portrayed as a villain throughout the X-Men cinematic and animated universe again and again? It doesn't have precedent in the comics, so what gives? It totally has precedent in the comics, first of all. Psylocke gets possessed and goes evil all the damn time. She's also consistently written as a very, very morally gray character. That's something that's been explored a lot in the last decade, especially in the X-Force teams and series she's been part of. Her relationship to morality and her relationship especially to killing and violence is something those series have spent a lot of time on, I think, particularly Cy Spurrier's run. Mm -hmm. And I think visually, she's got a lot of villain coding that people tend to key in on. I mean, she wears purple. That's yeah, I was going to say she wears a secondary mm-hmm. collar, which is a thing to begin with. She carries a bladed weapon in a superhero universe. But Sarah mentioned very early on the intersection of a couple of very specific stereotypes of Asian women that she's kind of a hybrid of. And I think that might be an even more central reason because she is at a really unfortunate junction of basically Dragon Lady and Ninja Chick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard not to say interesting again, but it's kind of interesting because 
when I was thinking about this, when it was sort of going back and, and really getting to the root of like, what are all the specific problematic elements of this? One element is we were talking before about, you know, putting Asian stuff on white people. And I think one thing here is the kind of Asian stuff, because as you said, it basically boils down to sort of two different stereotypes. And actually what was kind of funny to me in a terrible way is that there are two different stereotypes of, of uh, especially East Asian women. One is, and they sort of like, when you put these two stereotypes together, they sort of boil down to sexy ninja, which is what I feel like Psylocke is often described as in a shorthandy way. Well, even by Jim Lee. Who <laughs> yeah, right. So person. like, on the one hand, you have um, the sexy, exotic Asian lady who's there primarily for male pleasure and male gaze. And, you know, it's almost like we don't really care maybe what she's thinking or if she has agency or what she wants to do. It's sort of like there's this idea that she's there to be hot. Um, although, as as you guys talked about, which I think is very true, um, is that the way actually the way Psylocke is drawn in this arc, she is very powerful. Like the her fight poses are actually, for the most part, pretty realistic. Um, she's pretty much a badass. Like, I really love that. Um, but I think like over time, that is has not always been the case um, as she's sort of been included in other stories. Um, and then the other the other stereotype is the mysterious, inscrutable ninja. So you're basically turning, you know, you basically have this character that is a mix of fetishes um, and in a way makes her sort of othered to the nth degree. Like it's like if she was one of those, she would be othered. But since she's both of them, she's othered even more in a way that, um, you know, sort of Betsy Braddock never was. Um, and marketing wise, I mean, I'd say it worked because like we were saying, Psylocke is still referred to mostly as a sexy ninja. Well, and in terms of hero villain allegiances, those are both stereotypes that tend to be associated very, very closely and tend to be stereotyped very heavily. I think largely based on cultural stereotypes as often villainous or duplicitous or at best tragic. Yes, that's so definitely very true. I think, I mean, I think if you're coming at this from a cultural perspective that doesn't involve examining those things, looking at her and seeing a, a cluster of attributes that you associate with the villains could make it really, really easy to automatically cast her in that direction. Yeah, no, that's definitely very true. And again, it's it's kind of you know, funny in a terrible way, um, because again, like I think when I was younger and looking, I mean, looking at any Asian character that popped up it almost didn't matter what they were like just the fact that they existed was sort of awesome. Um, and hopefully, hopefully we're moving now in a direction where we can sort of ask for more out of our media. But I was actually talking to my husband about this, uh, this morning, he's Chinese American and he was saying, um, you know, cause the Mandarin is such a big, uh, obviously such a big part of this arc. He was like, you know, honestly, he's like, I know the Mandarin is totally racist, but when I was younger, I thought the Mandarin was awesome because he was basically Chinese Dr. Doom. <laughs> basically, um, yeah. He's like, so, you know, I was like, OK, cool. Like, I want to be the Mandarin. And again, hopefully it's something where we're moving to a place where we can ask for more out of representation. But I think even with certain stereotypical or villainous attributes a lot of us have like maybe a little bit of a soft spot for certain characters like this just because they existed. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, that's something that we've come back to again and again on this podcast and just in commentary, which is that what we want when we talk about representation and range of representation isn't just, you know, something that's visible. It's having enough that each example isn't treated as definitive, that you can have characters who aren't paragons, who are, you know, that have as wide a range of, you know, female Asian superheroes as you have of Caucasian male ones. And with that degree of nuance and that degree of variation. Exactly. Like you have like hit on the exact point. I feel like I've been trying to sort of articulate in a lot of different ways for a while. I feel like we said this in stereo on at least one panel together (laughs) at some point. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like you're right. You're totally right. I feel like I'm having like deja vu now. Um, Like this has totally happened before. But, um, you know, honestly, that's something that I've tried to do in my work. That's one reason I have multiple Asian-American superheroines in my books, just because I, I want to hopefully be able to convey a range of experiences. And even then, I still have what um, I've talked about before, which is called the rep sweats, where I'm still like, but are these still the representations of Asian-America that we need? You know, because they're just really aren't enough yet that um, we can ignore problematic aspects um, or that everybody sort of feels like they have their representation. But, you know, hopefully we're getting to that point. And like we were talking about, even though there's a lot about these issues that's super dated, even though there's a lot that's super problematic, I still do love the fact that there is a page where there are two Asian American or well, an Asian American superheroine and a sort of altered to look Japanese superheroine uh, fighting together. So I think with that, we're going to wrap things up. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really I'm such a big fan of the podcast and I enjoy hearing your takes on all the issues. And I was happy to be here. Oh, thanks. Well, we're a fan of you, too. And it was awesome getting to talk to you about Psylocke and just, you know, X-Men stuff in general. Yeah. And we've we've mentioned um, so Sarah's novel, Heroin Complex, came out this year. You can pick it up. Ask your local independent bookstore to order it. Sarah, where can folks find you online? They can find me at heroinecomplex.com. That's heroin like superheroine. Um, And on Twitter, which I'm on way too much, it's just my name is my Twitter handle. And you can find me there a lot. And again, we'll link to those from the visual companion to this episode, which you can find at explainthexmen.com. So with that, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional entities. Today, I am handing the mic to the one and only Mojo. Major Domo, what what are all these ninjas and businessmen doing in the skull of Molly Webb? She was my toy, and now they're breaking her. Spiral! Twist us into Ani's head instead. Ani can walk the wild ways just as well once we build a new set of spying eye spy eyes. Psychic assassins, pink princesses, whatever, doesn't matter. They all belong to Mojo! And let's talk to the angry Claremontian narrator. Who is Izzy Gazelowitz, really? Is there some inherent self below the surface? Unchanging? Or are you merely the sum of your experiences? Only a few subtle memories away from a different life, as Doug Atkinson. And with that, 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, interviews, fan art, recaps, video reviews of current X-Books, and much more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Special thanks to guest expert Sarah Kuhn. Find her online at heroinecomplex.com. We'll have that link in Sarah's Twitter and the visual companion. Next week, we'll continue to follow the X-Men as they emerge from the Siege Perilous. As Genosha makes its move, and somehow, Dazzler the movie is still a thing. 